Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. We're not asking. This isn't a, a plea. Please, you know, give us some charity here. Now, this is justice, and it's my job to, to help you all figure out what it's worth. And it ought to be at least this much. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I am. Uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm excited about our uh, about our two guests for this uh, upcoming show. Yeah, we have. Um, we'll get into it because we have a surprise guest. So that's always fun and a different yeah. perspective than we usually have. So um, it's it'll be a good episode for us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I want to hear, we were talking a little bit with our guests, uh, Nick Rowley and Steve Haltman uh, b- beforehand about uh, how they approach trials. And we've certainly got a fascinating case to talk about, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting into that with them. Absolutely. So um, before we dig into the case that we're going to talk about, which is really interesting, let's um, tell everybody who's on the show. So as you mentioned, we've got Nick Rowley, who is a trial lawyer in California. And from what I can tell, all over California um, and not just California, um, you can look him up at... He's got a lot of websites, but the best way to find him is tl4j.com, I think. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and Nick, you know, we get a lot of interesting guests on the show, but Nick Nick certainly has an interesting background. Like for, for a lot of our guests, I like to pick like the one sort of different thing, but almost all of Nick's stuff is different. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to talk about him for too long while he's just waiting for me to shut up, but um, he's definitely got an interesting background. He got his um, bachelor's in psychology by the age of 19, which is already an accomplishment, but he did that while he was serving in the U.S. Air Force and Army as a medic. Um, he served in the armed forces for six years. I think he was also a volunteer firefighter somewhere in there. And in the middle of all that also got his law degree. Um, he was named the 2018 trial lawyer of the year by the Consumer Attorneys Association of LA, among many other honors, um, including super lawyer, national law journal, top 100 trial lawyers. Um, he specializes in serious injuries and medical malpractice. Um, especially traumatic brain injuries, spinal injuries, chronic pain. Um, and we're going to talk um, a little bit about more about that. But but this case we have is a little bit different that we're going to be talking about today. Um, one of the things that Nick does that's really cool and involves our special guest is that um, they wrote a book called Trial by Human. And um, I can't wait to hear more about that and that approach. And so, Nick, I'll let you talk about that and also tell us more about our special guest, Steve, um, who is a jury consultant. He co-wrote this book with you. And it sounds like you all really um, dig into trials and accomplish a lot together, aside from just writing a book. And was part of the trial team that uh, of yes. the trial that we're here to talk about. Yes. Today. And you and I think you can also go to trialbyhuman.com and and look it up. And the other thing I was going to mention, Nick, is that we that Yvonne didn't mention is that uh, it looks like you've put together your own football team. <laughs> I, I saw that you have seven boys, four girls. That's correct. So you are a, you are a busy man in all aspects. And girls should be able to play football that's right you know, even though i'm not a big proponent of football because of what it does to your brain right right i think we all now know that women can do everything you know that men can do usually better much better 
That's for sure. So I'm, I agree. I'm that as a girls, because I had all boys for you know the first you know, my life as a parent, and then the girls came I'm like, wow, they're really smart. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I'm a dad of, of a two girls. So, yeah. So having only girls, I, I agree with you. <laughs> um. So, so Steve, who's who's Steve Haltman? He's one of my best friends in this world. I consider him a brother. We wrote Trial by Human together. We, we wanted to really revolutionize the way that people were approaching cases. And really, we, we fell into it. We were down in Costa Rica. I was you know, trying to find an, an exit strategy because I thought that someday that, that there would be a, you know, a doomsday and we'd need to get out of the United States. I didn't know that it would be you know, now. <laughs> I anticipated it a little. So I bought this land in Costa Rica and I bought some of the land from him and his then wife. And he started, and he was in, into building at that time, having been a night court judge and a law professor, you know, is taught, you know, throughout all over, but in Japan in particular. And he had ended up in Costa Rica. And so his then wife's childhood best friend was my business partner, John Carpenter. So John Carpenter and a friend named Mike Koppel and this guy who's a brain scientist named Alex Villa from, from Spain, we all ended up down in Costa Rica visiting Steve and his wife. I said, this place is amazing. And, you know, it seems a lot better than, than the United States. It seems like a really great place where I could afford to raise kids. And this was before I had had really made it as a trial lawyer. I tried a number of cases. I had one cases, but nothing to the, you know, at the level, you know, that, that I'm at now. So he goes, well, he goes, if you want to, you want to buy some of this land, then okay. You know, I wasn't really thinking of selling it, but okay. I can, you know, break off a piece of my land and I bought some, bought the land next door. I said, well, you built this nice house. Do you think you could get your crew and maybe supervise and help build me a house? And I was, well, I kind of wanted to, you know, go trekking in Tibet, but okay. I mean, this is Steve, right? I mean, he's traveled the whole world. He's lived all over. His stories, there's no one you're going to meet in your lifetime that has the stories to tell that, that this man has. So I, I really became enamored with him and thought, wow, I, I hope this guy becomes my friend. And he did. One one time I'm back down in, in Costa Rica because I'm going back and forth trying cases. I'm telling him about a case that I'm going to try. And he, he reshaped the entire case on, on a hike. I said, why don't you come up and, you know, try the case with me? And he said, well, I'm not licensed in, you know, in California, which is where I was trying the case. And I said, well, just, just come up. You can, you know, just write me stuff and, you know, spit stuff into my ear. Next thing you know, he's meeting with all the witnesses He's framing the case. We're putting together the visuals and, and we and we knock it out of the park and, and one after another. And we thought, well, what, you know, what we're doing works. Let's share it. Let's share it with other people. And we're, we're not approaching trials the way that, that we were taught to, you know, taught to do in law school. We're, we're doing it differently. And, and this is working and it's helping people. And the lawyers that, that we were connected with would start, you know, applying some of our methods and they'd start winning and doing well. And so we wrote Trial by Human. He wrote most of it. 
but I get all the credit for it. And that's, that's a really great part of our relationship. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> really, we worked on this book for years and took some of the stories of our cases and, and, and tried to make it real and raw. And it, and it has helped change the way that many people practice law. And we've, you know, we continue to be really hard on ourselves and, and try to do better and, and give each other constructive criticism and find out, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And the trial by human method is, is about finding that common thread that connects us all together as human beings. And, and it could be, you know, that juror who you're so afraid of, who ended up on your jury that, that maybe your, you know, your partner, your jury consultant, or you said you didn't want on the, but you were out of preemptory challenges. And now you're stuck with that juror. If you can find that common thread that connects that juror, your client, you, and bring that into the courtroom, you're going to win. You're going to win. And that's what the trial by human method is about. But it starts with you. It starts with, you know, really getting in touch with our humanity and being brutally honest with, with ourselves about every part of the case and about what's going on in our lives at that, you know, whatever stage we're in. And that's Steve. You know, he, he takes the, this all of his life experience and he brings it into every case. He just does amazing work. And so we're here at a friend named Ralph Wiggis's ranch. And it's where, where is this located? Like, uh, west of Bakersfield, California. Okay. Beautiful. It's really in the middle of nowhere. Right. But it's kind of it's kind of a it's kind of a circle for the two of us because our very first trial together was in Bakersfield. Uh and uh to give you an idea where we were starting out, you know, he had half the bed and I had half the bed. We literally shared <laughs> right, yeah. literally shared for the entire trial. Yeah, I thought oh, so man. this is I'm trial lawyering. I'm all in. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I put a pillow between us, but his arm would end up. I'm like, come on, come on. You know, no, we really did. We 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 shared shared a bed for a month of of this trial that we did because you know that we really didn't have the money to pay for hotels then, and the lawyer that brought us in the case had an extra had a guest house, one bed. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you both for joining us. And Steve, I'm really glad you're here because we um, we talk to trial lawyers a lot, but we're always um, we always want fresh perspectives and different ways to think about things. And that sounds like exactly what you all um, do in your approach and what you what you talk about in your book. Um, uh, as Steve mentioned, you um, helped out with this trial, this case that we're about to talk about today. And this would be a fun one for me and Steve, because there was only so much we um, actually know about this case, mainly through through news articles that we got. So um, I'm really interested in how you all can flesh out the picture for us. Um, let me tell our listeners a little bit uh, about the basics of the case, at least as I understand them. And then you all will get the chance to jump in and correct. I'm sure the many things I'll get wrong. And then we can really dig into what was happening. Um, so this was a 2015 trial in Riverside County, California. Um, the name of the case is Ray Jordan and Carmen Maria Jordan on behalf of the estate of Orlando Jordan versus um, TGI Fridays, the, the restaurant, and Briad Restaurant Group, um, among others. And briefly, I think there was a lot going on um, that we'll probably get into in this case, but in general, uh, 
there was a man named Orlando Jordan who was then in his 30s, I think around 33 years old. Um, and he took a woman to a date to on a date to TGI Fridays. And the woman's son, a man named Michael Castillo, uh, he showed up with his friend, Luis Martinez. And uh, Mr. Castillo apparently did not approve approve of his um, mother's relationship with Orlando Jordan. And you know why? I have no idea why. <laughs> because Orlando Jordan was Puerto Rican. And Puerto Ricans in the Hispanic community are considered black. So it was his mom is now out in public in the same place where he ends up with his buddies with a black guy. Okay. Yeah, where, where were the Casillos from? There, there was, he was Mexican. Okay. And was it a, did he, did he show up? There was some racism going on there. Right. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. And did he show up knowing that his mom was there or was that a, just a coincidence? I think it was a coincidence. Okay. I think it was a coincidence. The, the defense wanted to make it out to he went there and this was a hit. Okay. But this right. was okay. All planned and there was nothing that TGI Fridays or security or anybody could have done. Gotcha. Okay. So as, as a coincidence. Okay. So, so as Nick mentioned, this, this case already starts out a lot different from a lot of the cases that, that we talk about, but as our listeners know, something's always gone wrong. That's why it, it ends up being a case. Um, but here, so Mr. Castillo and his friend, they're at the TJI Fridays and, um, they're served. And I'm sure we'll talk more about this sounds like the equivalent of about 12 servings of alcohol in 30 minutes while they're at the TGI Fridays. Mr. Castillo is 20 years old, so he's underage. And he eventually gets in an argument with Mr. Jordan and, and he, he and his friend do, I guess. And, uh, Mr. Jordan is stabbed at the TGI Fridays and he dies as a result of his injuries. So as you can imagine, there's criminal charges against um, Mr. Castillo and his friend. But this but we're here, obviously, to talk about um, the civil case on behalf that was brought by um, Mr. Jordan's parents. Um, so we're going to talk more about that. But Nick tried this case uh, successfully. And we're going to talk about some of the facts that he uncovered, specifically as it pertains to um, to TGI Fridays and the restaurant group, which is obviously the more challenging and, and, and uh, less obvious part of the case. Uh, I'm going to shut up in a second. The jury's award was $40 million. Uh, they allocated 45 of 40% of the fault to Castillo, uh, 5% of fault to his friend, Mr. Martinez, and then 55%. So the majority of the fault to um, the, to the restaurant. So you already uh, weighed in on some facts that we didn't know, but I guess let's just start Nick and Steve, if you can just kind of flesh out more of the, the factual background of what was happening that I might've left out. So TGI Fridays and Briad, these were corporations that were in the business of serving underage people. We, we established that in the trial. We established that through witnesses. They denied it. They disputed it. And the reason why Castillo was there that day with his buddy was because he knew that that was a place where he could go 
get through there being no security, not get ID, drink as much as he wanted while he has a knife in his, you know, in his pocket. He knew he knew that this was a place where he could get access. TGI Fridays and Briad knew that there had been um, violence. The, the, the list was so long. Knew that people had been there underage drinking, knew this was a hot spot for underage drinkers and continued to let people in, not ID them, not have any security, even though they had found knives and guns and different things on the property. You know, when basically lights come on and when the party's over, everybody go home. They had found weapons, you know, over the years. We had security guards who testified that, you know, this was dangerous. We knew they knew that this was a hot spot. And that's why Castillo was there with a weapon. He knew this was a place where he could party and where he could get in with a weapon. Just so happens to be that his mom was there, too, you know, with a guy who embarrassed him. And Nick, Nick always, Nick always insists that, you know, we spend a lot of time at the scene and, you know, initially I didn't see the sense in that kind of thing as much, but the, it's never been a case in any trial. We're not going to this. We're going to the scene has been a negative without fail. Something comes up. And I, I actually went to the TGIF Fridays uh, to have a couple of beers and uh, see what they were serving the the beverages in, and that their policy was plastic, right? But they were serving in glass. And also hanging out there, I think the corporation wanted it both ways. They wanted it so you could serve food in one section of TGIF, and you could serve drinks in another section. But the way they had designed the layout of the building was there was incredible ingress and egress between the two. So you could go in and order a burger, and you could go over and walk over as a kid and get a, a, a beer. And I think the point is they, they were cheap, right? Yeah. They left their security up to the bartenders and not to any security right. guards. And so, as I remember it, these kids were just getting people to buy them drinks up and down the, up and down the night, right? I yeah, mean, that's where they were getting, the mom bought them drinks, everybody else bought them drinks, right? I think, and we established that he could go up and order drinks, but yeah, the, their defense was, was it was the mom. The mom was buying the kid drinks, right? That was their defense. And the other defense was, well, hey, this is also a family restaurant. The bar is separate. And that's when Steve went and he goes, this isn't separate, that's bullshit. That's a frivolous defense, that's a lie. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, 
stuff for your website. Uh, settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into Legal Technology Services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Atlanta.com, legal technology services, uh, give them a try. So, well, you know, one thing that I was confused about when I when I saw it was that it, it in one of the articles I read, it, it sounded like that Castillo and um, Martinez were were drinking with uh, Mr. Jordan and and uh, Castillo's mother. Were, were they all sitting at the same table drinking together? At different points, they were. Okay. At different points, they were. I think what what happened was. It was uncomfortable, and what Orlando did, he was, he was the sweetest guy. He was the sweetest guy. He, he was 33 years old. He, he you know, his mom, um, you know, was was retired. He worked at a bank. He'd go take his mom to lunch every week. He'd call her every day. He was just that sweet son, you know, that that we all want to have. And what he did was, he knew the kid didn't like him. He knew Castillo, Castillo didn't like him. So he said, just come over here, just sit down, have a beer, hang out. And Castillo just got more and more fueled up. And the more and more alcohol he drank, and he'd, you know, go up to the bar and they were they were doing shots. I mean, they drank a lot of alcohol that night. He eventually, you know, got his courage up. And how did it how did it escalate to the yeah. Sorry. How did it escalate to the point that, that there was actually a, a, a fight or a, the stabbing? Was that inside the restaurant or was that something that happened outside the restaurant or what, what happened? Inside the, inside the restaurant. Totally. I mean, did he just pull out the knife and just stab him? Uh, that was a little unclear. There was no, there was no fight. There okay. was no altercation. It was kind of, a, yeah, he was on his way out and I think he kind of came up behind him and started sticking him and with his help of his friend. Right. Yeah. And that was another thing that came out of hanging out in, in the place. It's, they had too many tables packed into the bar. So, I mean, it was, it was a complicated exit and there was right. a dance floor and there was a dance floor. That's yep. right. Yeah. And so I said, basically now's our opportunity. And, and it was late. It was late. It was early in the morning, right? It was after yeah. no, it was, after 1 a.m. Like, is what I read. Yeah. It's like 15, 20 minutes before closing. The the two killers were already out walking the streets. The the DA didn't prosecute their case. It's kind of lazy. And so they ended up you know, serving, I think one served two years, one served 18 months or something. Yeah, it was, yeah oh, I, I, they were out behind the civil trial. Right. So this was a case where crim the criminal justice system truly did fail. 
and the civil justice system truly did work. Yeah, I saw that they only got assault by a deadly weapon, and it looked like Mr. Martinez actually got a longer sentence than Mr. Castillo did, even though it it was a little unclear on who actually did the stabbing. Um, So was it Mr. Castillo who did did the stabbing, but Mr. Martinez actually got a longer sentence? I think they both did the stabbing. Okay, they both both did the stabbing. Okay. Well, and one of the... The longer sentence was related to some weird plea bargain, like one guy took the fall, I'll testify against, right, right, yeah, I'll testify against so-and-so, uh, even though our guy, the son, was the bad was the guy, stabber, right? he was the main stabber, but because he agreed to testify, the other guy got mm. screwed. Okay. Got it. Well, um, I, I, I think um, Castillo stabbed him while his buddy held Orlando yeah. from behind. Oh, man. That's awful. Um, one of the things that I, it sounded like you all had testimony from a, from at least a bartender about this that I thought, um, was really interesting was that you basically had, you had this bartender say, you know, they had a policy of, of letting underage people drink because it was on the weekends, because it was a big moneymaker there. That's correct. It's, Riverside is a college town. They have University of Riverside there. And as we all know, when, when, when you're that age, you know where you can go drink. Yeah. How can, how can I get in? Do you know, oh, the guy, they're, they're not going to card you. Just, you know, come on in. And TGI Fridays was that, was that location. The cops knew, everybody knew that this, that this was a place where underage drinkers would go. <laughs> Even the name directed them towards the weekend, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And, ga- right. and gang members. I mean, these guys were, these were rough guys. Yeah. So when the, the case comes in, I'm sure, you know, one of the things that you have to do, I know at, especially when you initially file it, you know, you're sort of checking in, in uh, against the different entities. It sounds like this TGI Fridays was, was part of or near a mall. And so you've got that involved. You've got whether it's it's different security or or the same security, how did you kind of um, sort of flesh all that out and focus on who on what was really, um, you know, what you really wanted to focus the case on, knowing that you you have this place that's clearly like a party spot and has had this history of of unsafe um, and sort of uh, scary things happening. Well, we came into the case really at the last minute when. Oh, okay. The- all discovery was done and it was the case was, was really in bad shape actually when, when we got involved Okay. and the defense wasn't offering anything, they, they were offering zero on the case. Yeah. If, we were, asked, we, we were asked to come in and, and try and take it over for trial, which is what most of our trials have been cases right. where you know, we get called at the last minute, the lawyers have been ha- handling it for years are like, they're not settling with me. Right, right. <laughs> I just want peanuts. I'm just are you guys interested? Yeah. So it's not it's not an exaggeration to say yeah. that we're writing the opening or making an outline of it as we learn the facts two days before the trial. Okay. Oh my now, goodness. That's mixed genius kind of thing. But we're all scrambling around going, he's saying, Can I say this? And we're going, hmm. Well, let's go find out. You yeah. Know? And then <laughs> yeah. We go running around trying to figure it out, but it's pretty condensed. It can be a 48 hour condensed 
approach for sure. We've, we've done a lot of our cases, a lot of pr pretty, pretty amazing um, results that have been cases we get with a couple weeks, a week, a day's notice that we jump in on and find that common thread and find the human story and walk in and pick our jury and try the case. Well, just to, we just prefer not to do it that way. Just to blow Nick's horn a little bit, uh, one of the last ones I worked on it with, he met the client seven minutes before opening statement. He learned the facts of the case. I explained it to him in the hallway, what had happened, because I had been working on it, and the attorney that was supposed to do it dropped out. And Nick came in and did a two-hour opening based on my seven-minute explanation in the hallway and knocked it out of the park. And he, you know, got a verdict for a slip and fall for over, yeah, it's like 1.5 million. 1. 1.6. 1. 1.6 against Costco. With wow. literally 10 minutes and didn't know the name of the plaintiff until, you know, right before he stood up and started talking. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. The lawyer, the lawyer who was set to try the case um, got really, really sick and couldn't. And at the last minute bailed, had to, had no choice. And I, I showed up and the defense lawyer for Costco, who was offering zero, um, refused to agree to a continuance. Wow. They had already done the motions eliminate. They had done all the pretrial stuff. So a jury was being called in and, he, and he's like, dismiss the case. And I said, no, let's continue it. Let's talk to the judge. And, and he, he was giddy, this defense lawyer. And this other lawyer had had a, you know, a real bad breakdown and couldn't, couldn't do it. And so I said, okay, you want a trial? And all right, I'll give you a trial. We figured it out. That's yeah. that's how we work together. Wow, that's great. So so let me ask you. I, I mean, I did understand. You said the case was sort of a, a mess when you came in, and my my understanding was is that uh, that several of the claims had been knocked out pre-trial by summary judgment. Like for instance, the claim against uh, TGI Fridays, uh, the corporate uh, entity, and then um the the mall i think the i think the gallery mall was a, a defendant and I, I i don't remember what the uh the name was, was for them uh, I'm gonna, the lawyer who had brought us in to do the case he's disbarred now he, he was accused during that during that whole case and what the defense was banking on is that he had you know paid certain witnesses and done oh all goodness. this unethical stuff and we find this out as we're you know <laughs> starting to try this case. And so we had to cut all of our witnesses. Like we, we couldn't call most of them. We had to try our case with just a few witnesses and really win the case on cross-examination and presenting the human story and through the criminal defendants themselves, because all the witnesses he had set up, we had to chuck because it would have been unethical for us to put them on the stand with the accusations right. that were made. We were like, it was a mess. Wow. It really, really well. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it a little bit. So my understanding of the yeah, lawyer, the lawyer, we, when we found all this out, we, the, the defense lawyer says, um, we're going to call him as a witness. And so I, we told him, we said, listen, I know you brought us in on this case, but this is a mess, man. And I'm not even going to ask you what's what, but you need to leave, not come anywhere near this courthouse. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we didn't even have him to turn to to ask questions. Oh. You know, ask what well, we, we had. Literally, there were, there were like 25 binders of materials in this case. We had to figure it all out because we couldn't trust him and he couldn't be anywhere near the courtroom. It, it was crazy. Wow. And, and it, you know, get, the stars aligned and it ended up being the largest non-economic damages verdict in, in Riverside County history. It, it was, if, uh, it might, might be the biggest in the state. Wow. For, for, Around so, that case, it was it's a big deal. Yeah. So my understanding, you know, when you when you when you're in the middle of of a of a blaze, right? You've got all the stuff being fired. You just gotta focus on okay, what's the human story? Who was Orlando? Carmen, tell tell us about your son. And we had Keith Bruno, another amazing trial lawyer, who was involved. With, with trying the case. And we had Stephen King, who was representing one of the one of the defendants, one of the criminal defendants. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we put together a dream team and at the last minute and, you know, asking Ray Jordan to tell us about your boy. Who was he? And, and then just establishing the, the, the basic core truth of the case, which is this is a corporation that made money off of selling alcohol. And they, they opened the doors, they opened the gate and they let somebody in and allowed him to get drunk and made money off of it. Someone who should have never, ever been there. And that was Castillo. We just focused on the core truth of the case and the jury got it. And the, the, the more the defense tried to you know, point the finger and blame others and, and say that this isn't a case of shared responsibility, we have... We have no culpability here whatsoever. The more inflamed the jury got. So, Steve, at this point, you had already worked with Nick on at least on, on at least one other case. So you guys already had your kind of dynamic figured out. That point it had been a, a few years of us, you know, doing jury trials. Probably right? 20 or 30 or I had something like that by that point. Yeah. A lot. So we when you're cranking out jury trials a year from 2006 forward. Wow. So when you're so when you're you know, you mentioned earlier that's how Steve will dig into the case. So, Steve, when you're going to the scene and checking out what this restaurant was really like in person, talking to these witnesses, you're doing that in like a very short time frame, basically getting this this case ready. Yeah, well, I Normally, I'm pretty well released uh, to go hang out with the critical human lay witness, non-economic damage witnesses. So, you know, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say I'll go to their house because I want to go to their house because that's where people are most comfortable and they're going to you know, talk about what's really going on. And then I sat down with mom and dad. And I basically explored their lives and their son's life and, and what he meant to them. And so that might take me, say, eight hours. It might take, you know, a full day. And then I'll write up something that he can read in, you know, what might take me 20 hours to put together. It's going to take him 20, 30 minutes to read. Mm -hmm. But he's you know, he's got all these weird synapses firing on his brain and he grasps that stuff really quick. And then he can mold that into a story 
that he wants to tell. Because if we just walk in there and say, oh, here's this guy. He was a great guy and he got stabbed and he shouldn't have got stabbed. There's no connection with the jury. But who cares? Who cares? But if you tell this human story, and I mean, I can't emphasize it enough, you know, if if he knows that mom had lunch every three days with her son and he called her every day because he was a mama's boy and he goes into the detail of that, how can humans not connect with that human and how can they not be on that human side? And we're going up against a corporation. So why not, why not emphasize that? And at the same time that I'm talking to them, I'm getting the conversation that they're going to have with Nick on the stand. Mm -hmm. And I'm molding it in such a way and, and planting things subconsciously, the themes of the case that they're going to get up there and they're going to tell that story to Nick when he asks them. And the key to that, I mean, I think the, the key to the whole thing is that story is told naturally and it's not artificial. It's not memorized. It's not like they know the answer to the question before it's ever asked. It's a conversation yeah. that they're naturally going to have with a guy that naturally is good at having conversations. That's all. We, we don't prepare question and answer question. I'm going to ask you this question. Here's how you answer. Oh, and by the way, here's how you position yourself and look at the jury. We do none of that. We, we want this to be real, not staged. And, it, real. and it's the truth. It's yep. the truth. And that's that's all we want. I don't care if the truth hurts us. It's much better than, you know, than than a lie that's going to catch us up in one little lie and the, our credibility is gone. So how do you guys deal with the element? You know, you're, you're identifying this human element of you've got this sounds like a really sweet guy, a really good guy. And then the relationship that he had with his mom and the loss of this guy. And on the other side, you've got this corporation that makes money off of selling alcohol. But then in the middle of that, you've got, you know, these two criminal defendants and that sort of, you know, human dynamic or at least relationship of, of, you know, this, the, the mom's son and her not liking the mom's boyfriend and whatever else, how do you deal? What was your approach to dealing with the, the two criminal defendants? This was a shared responsibility case. The, these two young men that killed Orlando Jordan are absolutely responsible. They share responsibility big time. But they have, they have actually paid a debt to society. They've been convicted. They will be felons for the rest of their life. They will carry this forever. They served hard time. In order for crime to occur, criminals need opportunity. They need an opportunity in this corporation because of its desire to make money and break rules in this community provided these young men the opportunity to commit this crime. If that opportunity didn't exist, Orlando would be alive today. My understanding of California law is that if uh, that there's some sort of immunity for a bar or restaurant, unless uh, you can show that the patron, an underage patron, was obviously intoxicated. So I guess a couple of questions I wanted to find out is talk about how you showed that they were obviously intoxicated when they were served and then how you linked up that causation that that's what caused 
the stabbing because I, I could see a defense here. My guess is the defense was these guys premeditated this. They came there with the intent to kill him and they were going to do that no matter what. That's just my, that's my guess. But talk about that a little bit. Sure. That's a great question. I'm sorry. I, I've interrupted you a couple of times. It's okay. I, I'm getting a little bit of a delay on my end. So I, I'm really sorry. Thanks for asking that question. The obviously intoxicated. We took the blood alcohol level. We asked them, how drunk were you? They were honest about it. And just let's work our way backwards. Let's work our way backwards. At the time of the killing, at the time he was served his last drink, he was obviously intoxicated. And he was underage. He should have never, ever been there. Hands down. And the, and, uh, the blood alcohol level that he had, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but when when we looked at the receipts of what the drinks were, and we talked to the bartenders and, and went through their custom and practice, we established that that this young man had drank a lot of alcohol, had pounded shots. How could he not be obviously intoxicated? Was there any um, uh, like surveillance video or anything like that? Not that they produced. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that, I mean, so was there a contention in the case that there was video that disappeared? There was, but we didn't get that instruction that we really wanted from the judge. We, we had a real, um, I think it was the judge's first jury trial. Uh, I, I think it maybe her first or second civil jury trial. She was um, doing her best. Right. There was surveillance video outside the bar right when they left uh and they're if i remember right there just had to be a police officer cruising yeah. by and cruising into the parking lot and the security there wasn't any security from the mall either across the street but there just happened to be a police officer cruise through the parking lot and that's all on video showing them fleeing the scene and the cop there and i think he arrested he got oh, blood. Yeah, yeah he had blood all over his yeah there was blood everywhere was blood everywhere and so you know that's always good for a jury when there's blood everywhere in a civil case. It's, uh, it's powerful. <laughs> was it part of the defense that it, this was a premeditated crime and nothing TGI Fridays was going to do was going to stop this? And, and if so, how did you, how did you counter that? Just said it was bullshit. You know, <laughs> didn't use that word, but <laughs> I, well, I think we backtracked from their plans, too, and established that these guys, you know, it was just a fluke that they showed up that night. You know, yeah. like they, I think they testified that they they showed up and we tracked them down and they showed up and said that, you know, it wasn't our plan to go there. But yeah. we ended up there okay. and then runs into his, his, his mom in Orlando and he was uncomfortable. And then it, it was um, what was the the testimony we got? It was. um. Oh boy, it wasn't Castillo. Despite he said he, he found his, but basically with that last drink, yeah. what was there? There he found his courage. Found his courage, but yeah. his, his balls or something. There was yeah. some, yeah, it was <laughs> some slang, but it was in right, or whatever. So, you know, he found his right. balls with that last drink, and then he went back and he said, "All right, let's let's get it." So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing 
www.digitallawmarketingcorp.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes. They're awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. It looked to me that that, uh, Castillo was in default and didn't show up at the trial, but you did have Martinez testify? Right. Okay. Right. And so, I mean, that that always presents problems from a trial standpoint that you've got this empty chair, you know, even though he's in default and in, in certain ways that's helpful to the plaintiff, but in, in many ways it's actually not because it gives that empty chair for the defendant to point at. I mean, how did you handle that situation with them uh, uh, pointing towards the empty chair of the person who wasn't there and that being the real culprit? Uh, we just, we owned it. Yeah. And the truth is that the lawyer who had um, handed us the case had messed that part of the case up. So I, I think he had got dismissed somehow. It was, he messed it up somehow. So we just said, he's not here. He's not going to be here. We dealt with it in jury selection. He served his time. You know, he's a felon. He's not here. But hands down, we got in the, you know, the, the, um, the record of the conviction and talked about what he did. So, you know, we made sure that we owned the empty chair. Right. That's that's something he's really talented at is just basically stepping up and saying, what are the ugly parts of the case? God, that smells, that's terrible or whatever. And then the initial reaction is, well, how do we get around that? And and a lot of times it's just better to say, this guy's not here. Is that, is that going to offend you? That this guy's not going to be sitting there. Is that going to be a problem with you? Because really this case is about TGF Fridays. And and, and somebody might say, yeah, it is. And then then that's why in jury selection, you just go after the uglies. You know, and and if I'm a juror, I mean, would you rather spend, you know, the next three, four weeks of your life with a man that's, you know, who clearly stabbed another human being to death, whose life we're here to talk about? But rather. here. I think you said, hopefully he shows up. We, we, right. Hopefully he shows up. But if, if, you're, if you're a defense lawyer and you have a weapon that you're going to use against us, what I'm going to do is take that weapon and 
control it. Right. I get it. Um, was Martinez, he, Martinez was there though. And he did testify. Correct. Okay. How, what, what was the crux of his testimony? Was he the one who said that they got there, got his courage, uh, with the last drink? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so you guys have mentioned, you know, some of the things that you dealt with in jury selection, like the fact that you had one defaulting criminal defendant, but how else do you, whether it's this case or just in general, how do you take your sort of, um, trial by human kind of approach? How do you work that into jury selection? If you do care about, care about the jurors and look at them and accept them and love them and show them kindness and not, you know, if you're a, if you're a juror, I have a choice. How do I look at you through what lens, through what lens do, you know, do, do I see this woman? Do I see her as you're white? My client's black. Oh boy. I wish you were black. I, I wish you were a minority. Or, um, boy, I mean, yeah, you, you, you look like a Republican. And I, I don't want Republicans right now. And in fact, I know you're a Republican because um, you have a Trump bumper sticker on your car. Oh, boy, you know, and someone told me that. So, or do I look at you through the lens of what a nice, amazing woman. It's so, so wonderful that, that she showed up here today and, and is playing her part in, in, in helping us achieve justice, whether or not she she stays or goes. Boy, I, I sure hope that she stays. I wonder what the common threads are that that we share, that, that you and, and this human who I represent share. I wonder, I, I bet you care about some of the same things. I want to learn more about you. I want to get to know you. I'm so appreciative of you. I, I hope, I hope, I hope that that we don't learn something that means you have to leave, that you can't be a juror on this case. I have so much admiration for you. That's the lens that I'm going to choose to see you through. And if they're just ripping on you and they just won't stop and they're just like, you're all the same scum sucking lawyer, blah, blah, blah. And he, it's one of his best moves. Tell me more. Tell me more. Let it out. You know, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. And it goes on and on and on. And, and then he'll say, I, I really appreciate you telling me. I appreciate you being honest. Anybody else feel that way? And so then we get those people that are just never going to give us a chance. And we get them all talking. And it tends to polarize the jury, the remainder, against what comes out as kind of extremist. Mm -hmm. uh, and then allows us to kind of come out of the jury selection in the lead in the case. So, I, I, you know, I, there's nothing evil they can say. There's nothing that you can't handle in jury selection if you just have that approach and you come at them with loving kindness. I don't see how you can fail. No, I absolutely agree. And, and it's the best way to set up a strike for cause too, is just to let them talk and, and let them uh, say everything that they can is, and uh, if they've got real negative feelings, uh, have them say it in front of the jury. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I, I am interested. So the obvious intoxication element, I, I thought I read somewhere that you didn't have any any expert witnesses. Was there a toxicologist who helped you with that? Or or did were you basically going off of what the blood alcohol content was after they after the uh, the incident? I, I most of our experts were excluded because of problems, you know, before we came into the case. I believe that we had 
we brought in, and Keith actually did an amazing job at this. We brought in the um, the criminalist who had the blood alcohol, and we reverse engineered it. Okay, so so who was working on the the criminal side of the matter, and you brought him in as a witness? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it was a fight to get that witness in, and and we we also did it, and and I, I don't remember whether that testimony got excluded. I, I really forget, um, but I know we did it with, with, um, with the witnesses, the lay witnesses, and just talked about how, how drunk Castillo was. Well, and it sounds like you, alcohol, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it sounded like you had a, a bartender, the head bartender that gave some pretty favorable testimony for you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. He did. he, he um he told the truth, and uh, their argument was he was a disgruntled employee because they had fired him. And, and he goes, "Yeah." And he goes, "Yeah, I'm, you know, wasn't happy that that you fired me, but the the truth the truth is the truth." And and we we were told not to card people. We knew that if that if we carded people, we'd make less money. And alcohol was the way that we made money, especially after ten p.m. So the rule was, is we didn't card anyone. Yeah, it, it was it was pretty last minute, but I remember I worked with him and I just sat down with him and I said, you know, I've been a bartender, you're a bartender. How do you make money? And he's like, well, tips. And I said, well, how do you, where do you get tips? From customers. So the more customers you have, the better, right? Right. So you guys want to make money what happens if you don't card people? And he goes, well, there's, there's nothing happens to you. And so it just kept blossoming from that. And, and, and everything was very logical if you understand what a bartender does. Right. And so once we had that story, he was willing to give us whatever we wanted. And he was willing to say that everybody else was doing exactly the same thing, that it was the, it was the you know, standard practice of, of the corporation. Because the corporation was just looking at the bottom lines. And I think Nick got that up in the PMK or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I am interested in hearing. Uh, so you tried this in Riverside County. It, wh what is the uh, what is Riverside County like as far as, uh, let's say, compared to Los Angeles County? Um, or, you know, is it considered a middle of the road county, a conservative county, a liberal county? Most trial lawyers, if they're going to be brutally honest with you, would tell you that except for just a few judges, the judges there are absolutely horrible. They're defense orientated. They're, they're going to do everything that they can to, um, th this is the experience and opinions of other lawyers, and in my opinion as well, to help the prosecution in a criminal case and, and um, you know, steamroll over the criminal defendant. If you're doing a civil case that you're, you're going to get um, steamrolled, you know, by the defense lawyer and the judge, it's it's not a it's not a friendly place to try a case as a, as a civil plaintiff. Uh, I, I don't. Um, well, that's the judge and the structure of the courts or whatever. But from the jury perspective, from the it's a it's a working class. It's Riverside and San Bernardino are the center of what's called the Inland Empire. So just geography 
the further east you go from the Pacific Ocean, the cheaper it is to live. More blue right. collar you get. More blue collar, working class juries, and you know, bad air pollution tends to sit in the valleys out there. It's it's you know, if you're gonna if you're moving up in the world, you're moving west towards the ocean. So from a jury perspective, it's kind of nice. I mean, they're willing to take a look at it and say, yeah, you, you prove it to me. That makes sense. I'll go with it. But structurally, yeah, Nick runs into a lot of headwind. Right. All, all, the, all the lawyers that do what we do run into that. San Bernardino, great judges there. But Riverside, it is, it is rough. It is rough. And, you know, any Riverside judges hear this, I'm not naming who you are. <laughs> I hope you can't or go do probate or something, right? No, I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, your job is to call balls and strikes. But there are some great appellate court justices in, in Riverside with the fourth district. But I think the jurors are great. You know, the more the farther east you go, you know, the farther away from the ocean, the more Mad Max it gets. Because yeah, you know, get to <laughs> San Bernardino Riverside. I, I like those folks. Those are my people. Right. Gorgeous court. Yeah. Oh, gorgeous court. I was sworn in in Department One in Riverside, actually. It was. It is the most beautiful courthouse. Well, uh, uh, sorry, Vine. Were you going to ask a question? Well, I was just going to ask um, Steve. When you're sitting there, um, I, I so a lot of my trial experience, especially, was was has been, you know, in a more supportive role, but still sort of watching as a lawyer and not sure what I'm going to do, right? And I'm I'm gathering exhibits together and and wrangling witnesses and doing whatever. But I'm curious that during trial, what you, you know, what you're focusing on from your perspective, are you, you know, you know, as Nick's up there, are you focusing on this kind of this human element, this thread and how it's coming out? Are you looking at the jury? Cause I think it's, it's so hard to do what Nick does, but it's also so hard to sit there and watch. And part of that is just me, but I'm wondering from your perspective, what are you focusing on? It has shifted. Remember Chuck Custer? <laughs> it has changed as, I, as I've grown up and matured a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it used to be. I used to be. I was the guy that stepped in between Nick and whoever was about to punch on the other side. You know, okay. kind of thing. And, and like, no, dude. You know, it'd be nice to get paid on this case, and if you punch this guy, that's not going to happen. So, but no, he's 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 all grown up from you know when I found him, you know, floating in a river or whatever. But now. Nah. He, uh, so what I'm doing is I'm just sitting there and I'm trying to be, uh, the 13th juror. I'm trying to listen to it. And like, I'll get bored as hell when people do like medical testimony and my, I'll just drift off. And so I don't think it's effective really for them either sometimes, but, uh, I'm trying to listen to the story, just kind of kick back and think like, well, what do I think, you know? Uh, is, am I buying that? And then, and then I just come and, you know, we have a good relationship so I can just come to him and say, I'm not buying whatever you just been selling, or I think we need to shift this. And the other thing I'm doing is I'm kind of looking off lens, you know, uh, Nick's very charismatic in the courtroom. And, and even I, after all these years, still find myself kind of being drawn, my attention drawn towards him and watching what he's up to and, and being caught up in the moment. But what I'm really trying to do is not look at the displays, not look at the evidence, not not watch what Nick's doing, but watch what the jury's doing. And there's a lot that goes on off camera. You know, people look over, lean over, they roll their eyes or like, come on, give me a break or whatever. And I, I just catch that stuff. And I'm like, you know, 
we can we can adjust course subtly with that information. And then at the break, I just go up and say, here's what I'm seeing. Hey, it's great. Keep it up. Keep doing this. Adjust this a little bit. And, you know, and he listens and if he wants to, he does. And if he, if he doesn't, he doesn't, but it's a thousand chess moves, you know? And if you win 780 of them, I think you're going to win the trial. So every little bit of this helps. And that's why I do it. An example of, of, you know, just, this has happened multiple times where I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm listening to a, to a defense witness testify. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready because I'm going to get up and I'm going to, I'm going to shred this guy. And I know I've got to be nice. Or I've got to take this approach. So I'm getting in tune with what I have to do. Steve's tuning in is, is the, is the 13th juror and he's watching the jurors and I'm, I'm, I'm up and I'm, I'm standing up ready to, you know, just tear into this witness. And I've got a 40 minute cross exam. He pulls me back, you know, like, Hey, come here. Writes me a note. He's like, listen, the jurors aren't buying this bullshit, you know, get this done quick. Mm. You, you know, you got this. And so what was going to be a 40 some minute cross-examination is now a few minutes. I turn around, I look at Steve and he's like, got it. Look at the jurors. I've had jurors go, okay, damn. You know, because I could have got into it and given that witness a chance to come back. Right. 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 And and if you roll in the mud with a pig, you're going to get covered in what? <laughs> right. So right. there's things going on in the courtroom that he just, you know, he picks up on that mm-hmm. I I don't see. Right. Well, uh, talk a little bit about how you presented the damages in this case. I know you've you've touched on it with your with the trial by human and making the connection with uh, the uh, with Orlando's father. But just t- talk about how you presented the the damages. And, and uh, you know, I don't know in, in California, do you ask for a number or did you give them just so, some sort of guidelines to think about? I never ask for a number. Okay. Okay. You know, there's a lot of don't different ask- opinion on that. Tell us why you don't. Well, I don't ask for a number. I tell the jurors what the number ought to be. Okay. Don't ask, do tell when it comes to the value of a case. Because if you get up there and you start beating around the bush and you're saying, when a defense lawyer gets up there and says, well, Mr. Rowley just got up and asked for, asked you for this. He can ask for whatever he wants. I didn't ask. We're not asking. I'm, I'm telling and they ought to listen. And I hope you all, you know, I, I hope some of you feel the same way. It's worth this much, and here's why. And anything less than this amount is cheap. Here are the different options. We're not asking. This isn't a, a plea. Please, you know, give us some charity here. Now, this is justice, and it's my job to, to help you all figure out what it's worth. And it ought to be at least this much. You know, it, tens of millions of dollars, at least. At least. And the value of, the value of this young man, of his, the value of his life to his mom, to his father, they had other children. That's true. And all children are special. But Orlando, he was very special. And his value to his parents was great because as, as people age, there's a shift. There's a shift. And, and parents hope that there's going to be that child who's there for them as they age. And that was Orlando. He was the son who always was looking out for his parents. And as they were aging, he's the son who would have always been there. He didn't get up and leave the nest. He got up and 
he worked his butt off and he got a good job and he has a good life and he's stable and he's there taking care of his parents and giving them love. And the moment that they stumble, he'll be there to catch them. And that's what we hope we have. We we don't want to say it because no, no, we don't want our kids to take care of us, but but we need them. And he, 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 he was their he was their safety net for sure. And that's what came out pretty clearly in interviewing them. And the other thing is, you know, Nick spent a lot of time out there and he knows that, you know, people stumble a lot in that area of the world. The drugs, the gangs, crime, people stumble all the time. And in that community, the, the people that are respected the most are young males who haven't stumbled. And he is 30 some years old working in a bank and hadn't stumbled. So, you know, that that's a multiplier when it comes to money and verdicts in that neck of the woods. And and that's that's what he harped on. Uh, and, and the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, Nick can say, yeah, I, I tell him what the number I don't ask. But I've never seen Nick deliver a number that he didn't believe in. And I think I've seen plenty of trials working with other attorneys where they didn't believe in the number. They hesitate, they stumble, or they say it quick and move on quickly because they don't buy it themselves. And they are always asking me, yeah, how much should I ask for? And I said, well, you know, I wouldn't trade places with this guy for 10 million bucks. No way. Well, I wouldn't trade places with Orlando for a hundred billion. He's dead. But, you know, what's it worth? And they're like, well, I don't know. And I said, well, you find that number, believe in it and say it like you believe it because don't pussyfoot. And right. and, that, and Nick never does that, you know? And sometimes I don't agree with him at all. And this is where the $120 million, I'm like, not a month to Sundays, you know? I trade places with, but he believes it. That's good enough. But what's the value of, of Orlando's love to his mother? Love for one year, just one year, just one year, his love. We, we don't need, let's not get into his companionship, his guidance, the assistance that he had, just, just his love, just having lunch with her just once a week, being able to see his face and receive his love for one year, for one year. What, what is that? What is that priceless thing worth? Is, is a million dollars too much or is it not enough? It ought to be at least that. It ought to be at least that. And she had so many more years to live and so many more years to live with her son's love. Now let's add companionship. That's priceless. So, so what's the number we put on something that's priceless? You know, when we, all, when we add it all up, 30 to $50 million, that's, that's a bargain. That's a bargain. Yeah. So, so a verdict in that range is absolutely reasonable. That, that young man's love for his mother is gone. It was killed. And saying it's worth anything less is cheap and it's wrong. But you have the power. You have the power to say what it's worth. Nobody else. And they hope you're going to say it's cheap, but, but you won't. Because you know what it's worth. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, I understand that you did have a chance or at least maybe your co-counsel had a chance to talk to the jurors after the trial. Do you remember anything about what they said about the, the trial? Yeah, they gave, um, 
Sorry. They wrapped their arms around that, that mom and dad. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it was a unanimous verdict. Well, uh, guys, this has uh, certainly been powerful and uh, and great uh, great work on the case. Uh, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the uh, the Jordan versus Briad uh, restaurant group at Castillo uh, and among others a case that was tried in Riverside, California, back in. Uh, 2015 that resulted in a $40 million verdict. Uh, Nick and Steve, is there anything that we haven't talked about about the trial that you want to make sure our listeners know about it? You know, the the way to, to win is just to get in there and do it. I'm just impressed with your guys' knowledge of the case. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So you guys did your homework. Well done. I was like, that was a good case. Yeah, hey, that was interesting. Yeah. Oh, no, well done. Nice research. No, you guys you guys did yeah. a great job on this case. And it it, it 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 didn't sound like an easy case, especially with uh, with some of the pretrial rulings that uh, that that uh, you had in the case. So that that always makes things more difficult to work with. No, it looked like a, it looked in the early stages. It looked like a loser to me. I didn't yeah. see how we were going to tie TGF Friday to it. I think right. I tried fifty jury trials since then. It's it's been a lot, but you guys just brought it all back. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a terrific result for what sounds like a really sweet guy. Really sad story. Really sweet guy. Well, guys, thank you so much. I want to remind everybody, we've been talking to Nick Rowley and Steve Haldeman. If you want to look up Nick, you can go to uh, TL4, that's the number 4J.com. And uh, and also, you if you want to look up the uh, teaching materials that they put together on trial strategy, go to trialbyhuman.com uh, and, uh, and you can read all about the, their trial strategy and, and uh, order a book. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at 
greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.